0: Welcome to the Oldfield Consultancy Podcast today, everybody. I'm your host, Marie Oldfield, and I've got Andy Hollier with us today. Andy is a uh, teacher in the Creative Technology Department at the University of Portsmouth, and he runs a third-year option in artificial intelligence and talks about philosophy, which is something quite close to my heart. He was one of the first people in Britain to be on the internet in 93, so think about that. Hi, Andy. How are you doing?
1: Very well, thank you, Marie. How are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us today.
1: Very happy to be here.
0: So we wanted to talk today a little bit about something that um, people have been talking around for for a few months and it's become um, even more important recently around technology and unemployment and how artificial intelligence and automation might affect that. Um, What's your kind of view on how technology might affect unemployment or or employment in the future?
1: First of all, technology will affect unemployment. We know that, there's definitely no doubt about that. The big problem is it's really, really hard to predict exactly how it will do it, what's gonna happen. Um, just in one basis, it. as technology develops, then there's gonna be some jobs which become obsolete. There are very few jobs for someone who wants to be a stable lad nowadays, whereas there were an awful lot in the, in 1900. On the other hand, there's an awful lot more um, work for motor mechanics than there were 120 years ago. Um, this goes back a long way. If you if your listeners have heard of the Luddites back in the 18th century, um, the Luddites basically were weavers and the, when they brought in automated mills, This put a lot of weavers working in cottages out of business and they demolished these because they thought they were going to no longer have a job, which they didn't. Um, On the continent, the saboteurs. Um, A saboteur comes from a sabot which was the wooden clog which working people used to wear in France, which was like a wooden clog with leather on the top and a saboteur would take a seville and they would throw it into the machine, which of course obviously broke it. That's what sabotage actually is. <clears throat> it's throwing a clog cog into the mechanism. It goes back 200 years, 300 years. It's always happened. We've always had things changing. Um, the big problem is you really cannot tell what particular job is gonna become, what jobs are likely to become Limited, which jobs are never not going to exist anymore, and which ones will suddenly appear because the technology is there. Um, there were no jobs in phone shops 25 years ago. Um, <clears throat> does that answer your question?
0: It's it's a <coughs> It's a very big area, isn't it? Because we're talking about things like if we've got um, artificial intelligence and it's predicting cancers, do we still need the radiographer to have a look at the X-ray? Do we still need the human oversight? Or can we just use an AI system and then just create automation? And I think the perception is that maybe robots will be doing everything and we um, will be obsolete. But I I can't see um, a time where that would happen simply because when you try to implement AI into complex systems, it, it can't really, um, it can't deal with the context, it can't deal with the, the language, the translation that's necessary. And actually the person needs to actually have some sort of oversight over that system. Is that the kind of way that you kind of, envisage uh, this going?
1: Yeah, that's very true. Um, it would be a very, very difficult situation. It would be morally bad, um, just from the point of view of individual patients, it would be bad and I can't see you be able to do it legally to do away with radiographers, for example. Um, just because you can get a long way with things like AI vision systems, um, but it's, you can never really trust them where someone might die, basically. Um, there has to be somebody there. Now, maybe you need to have one radiographer, whereas, whereas before there would be hundreds of them. Um, but you always get problems. There was a, a case related to this. Um, they were doing some study with GP3, which is one of the main vision systems that's around. And they were training up to recognize skin lesions. So you basically had photographs of moles, and some of them were benign and some were cancerous, and they were training it to identify it. The problem they had was an awful lot of the photographs of cancerous lesions had a ruler underneath to show how big the actual blotch was. So what happened was the vision system was training itself to say, oh, it's got a ruler, that means it's cancerous. So it was really good at identifying rulers, but it couldn't actually tell the difference between skin lesions and things. What you do get from this is, for a lot of those types of really boring discrimination problems, then often you can get to a stage where the system is actually better than a human being. One of the ones they've done is things like identifying um, suspect bags going through airport security systems. And that's an incredibly boring, but very high-skilled job. You've got somebody who is sitting there all day watching the x-ray machine and seeing seeing the cases go through and has to see whether there's something that could be a bomb going through. Now, vision systems are actually quite good at doing that. And they're actually an awful lot better than someone who has been sitting there for four hours. And it's really, really bored with seeing the, this, this three thousandth case go through. And maybe that one's the one that's got one. Um, you would still need to have somebody who, you know, you'd get an alert and then someone would actually say, yes, that is or no, it isn't. You have to have someone. You're, you're never going to get a situation where it's entirely unsupervised or at least I can't see a situation, it's gonna need a significant change in society before we could actually have a case where the things are completely unsupervised. But a lot of those sorts of things, um, it's a slightly flippant one, but things like um, the systems that give people a a green light or a red light for a loan and stuff like that, most of that's automated nowadays. So it takes in records of your bank statement and it says, whether there's a good chance or a bad chance of you you defaulting. And therefore it gives a recommendation. And some of that is done automatically. I mean, there was the the old joke on Little Britain ten years ago about, oh, computer says no. But you still need to have humans in there somewhere. The thing is, you probably need to have a lot less humans than you did a period of time before. On the other hand, Being a security guard who's watching the CCTV system is really, really boring and pretty terrible job.
0: What do you think the impact on the labour market with this is? Because where you say instead of having hundreds of people, you might just need one, where are these other 99 people going to go to? Are they going to be more creative or more strategic or where will they be displaced to?
1: This is, of course, the great thing that always was presented to us, that (coughs) In future, we'll be able to do our work in in two hours a day, something like that. And all this automation will make it so much easier for us. And what happens is that some people are then working 40 hours a week, and a lot of other people can't actually get a job at all, and are basically left without anything active to do. Um, That's a side effect of the way the labour market works. It's not really within the realm of technology. You need, technology needs to have a view on it, needs to, you don't really want to make all taxi drivers out of work. Though there's a good chance very soon that they will be. Um, One of the big cases, the reason they don't allow um, computer assistance on racing cars is that what would have actually happened is that a computer-assisted car is vastly faster and vastly safer than a manual car, than a car run by a human being, like somewhere in the order of 10 to 100 to a 1, thousand times better. Um, if, if all the cars on the road, I'm staring out at the A26 which is just outside my study window, and if all of those uh, vehicles were, were computer organized, the number of accidents would go down by a factor of a thousand. As long as they all were. Um, <clears throat> but the problem with that is that you need to have. If if we didn't actually have taxi drivers around, then yeah, you've got taxi drivers, you need to find something else to do. And if you don't have a system whereby you find things which will fit into the new ecosystem of work, then what do they do?
0: And that's that's kind of a, a big question. In a capitalist yep. society where you need to earn money to survive, how are you going to earn that in a land that's technology-orientated?
1: Being very slightly cynical, I'd point out that that particular model is really only about 200 years old. Um, you, Until about the 1800s, people didn't have, or most people didn't actually have a job except for the professions you know lawyers and doctors and teachers and such like that's what they did but a lot of people somebody who lived in a village would just do stuff and one day he'd be working on the harvest another day he'd be taking the sheep up to the field another day he'd be repairing a gate and that sort of thing he didn't have that you have to do this and then you get work eventually you've got a sheep that you can eat and It was really the industrial revolution coming in that gave it this thing that you turn up at nine o'clock in the morning and you then work for that long and we then pay you several thousand pounds at the end of the month because you've been there and you leave at 530 and those sorts of things. So that's actually itself an artificial thing, which, by the way, we've seen break down in the last 12 months, of course.
0: It is kind of a hangover from sort of factories and that kind of thing where there's yeah. productivity related things going on, where you're in a world where you don't have to necessarily be doing that. You could be doing something else. Do you see the future of work in in terms of a job dramatically changing into something really different, say two hours a day of doing something else? How do you see it happening?
1: Yeah, the I could see, you know, the gig economy um i could see that coming along the trouble you've got is that that only really applies to a fairly small relatively affluent and fairly highly trained um proportion of the population um i've got two or three different things i mean nominally yes i am a day teaching fellow at the university of portland and that is my job and that's the thing that i put down on a form or things like that but I haven't actually started writing my textbook yet, but I'm supposed to, and various, there's all sorts of other things. And I'm in a situation where if I don't actually have a class on, then yeah, sure. I mean, I can go to Tesco's when it's not busy. I don't have to go at six o'clock when everybody else is going. Um, I've got that sort of flexibility. I'm sure you have the same situation. You've got two or three things that you do, and you've got various side gigs that turn up if you do things. But that is really only the, the middle classes who have that sort of luxury. Um, if you're in a situation where you're only just making enough to pay for for food and rent, then you really don't have the opportunity to go off and, and write a, um, an award winning blog or something like that, or go off and paint pictures or stuff like that. You just don't have the, luxury of that sort of thing. Um, and that does apply to a very, very large proportion of the population, which is which is a bad thing, I'm basically going to say. I'm not going to, I don't want to analyse it, I'm not an economist. Um, and we really should have society in a different way from that sort of thing.
0: So it seems like there's a radical societal shift um that that may or may not happen in the future of work but also um on a human level is it taking away jobs for people that um aren't particularly academic don't want to go into you know desk work they want to do something with their hands they want to work on a you know on a factory line or with cars is that opportunity still there for them or is that something that's going to be taken away
1: they're a lot more vulnerable um let's face it, basically all manufacturing has now gone to China. Um, Small scale mass production manufacturing is virtually impossible in Western Europe now. Um, Which again is is a sad thing. Now there is the option that if you, if you do craft and you've got the facilities Then there's certainly a perfectly good living to be made if someone wants. If someone had a forge and could set themselves up and do ironwork as a blacksmith, there is an awful lot of things that you can make which would then sell for quite a lot of money. Um, I've just paid out a thousand pounds for someone to rebuild all the windows in the house. You know, that's the sort of thing. You know, he did really, really nicely there, and those sorts of. Occupations are still there, and in fact, stuff like uh, the building trade, for example, can they can make a very good living um, because basically it's not something you can't you can't order a new house from Amazon. You know, you actually have got to be someone who is physically here and who's going up a ladder and actually goes and does it. Um, those sorts of things are safe. Where we have the problem is that a lot of other things have been de-skilled, um, working. Somebody say working on the tills in Tesco's, they their job is at risk from the serve yourself tills, which above everything else actually is because, um, I mean personally I actually prefer the serve yourself tills because I don't. Sometimes there's something like um, a hangover cure or something like that that I don't really want to have somebody look and see and go through. You understand where I'm going with this, you know and. There is actually a sort of personal security, and the fact that I know what it is I just put through, but the person sitting on the other side doesn't get a chance to judge me. Now, somebody who is working on the on the checkout at Tesco's, that's not a. It's it, it's actually a very difficult thing to do, but it's not high skilled, especially now with barcodes and such, right? Because all you basically do is just scan the thing straight through, and that's it. You don't even have to type the numbers in. Um, and there's where you've got the risks. Now, from a strict capitalist analysis, then you, you'd have a situation where their jobs don't really matter because they're, they're basically replaceable by anybody else. And if we don't pay for those, then great. That's a cost that um, the business doesn't have. In general terms, in terms of society, those people are then not spending the money in Tesco, so Tesco's don't then make the money because the people aren't spending the money because they don't have it to spend. Um, a lot of these changes—it's sort of one of the big problems. Politics is really about changing; is about you've got a situation before and you've got a situation after, but trying to get from the one to the other is like trying to change, trying to replace a tire on your car without pulling out of the fast lane of the M25. you're like leading out the window trying to take the wheel off and that bit in between that's a really really bad situation to be in and you have to try and get from the one to the other without actually breaking anything and that's the difficulty.
0: Do you think that there's any kind of um, risk to us as humans with with all this technology because if you're spending your entire day where you used to speak to somebody on the bus and then speak to somebody at a till and speak to somebody at the bank. And now you're actually just doing all this interaction with a machine and not getting interaction with people. Um, there's been a few studies recently come out about a concept of dehumanization. Do you think this is a real danger and a risk?
1: It's certainly something that people have talked about for a long while. Um, there's quite an interesting little novella that came out in I'm going to leave when it came out because it's more, it's more effective than I'll tell you later. Um, there's a story called The Machine Stopped about someone who basically lived in a room and everything was automated and such like. And then basically all these systems break down, the machine stops, and they come out and see that there's a real world outside. And this was written by Ian Forster, who wrote A Passage to India, and really is the last person you'd expect to write this sort of thing, and he wrote it in 1904. So, a lot of these concepts, are we actually being isolated off and that sort of thing? um, I've been there for a long while, well over a hundred years. Where, yeah, it's very, very possible to be in a situation where all you're doing is working with a database and you're typing something in and it's dehumanized and it's boring and it's it's not a productive way to spend your time. And basically the only real realistic reason you'd have to do it is because you're being paid for it. Um, fortunately, a lot of the time you're actually interacting with people. You're just happen to, happening to use computers as a medium, the same way as we're using. I mean, I've got my MacBook sitting here in front of me and I'm talking to my, my MacBook and in fact, I've got a dog just there staring at me. He really can't understand why I'm spending my time talking to this computer and not to him. Um, and. Yeah, I mean, I find I sometimes have a week when I don't physically interact with people, but then at other points I have meetings and I have meetings with my colleagues and some of them are all over the place, um, you know, all over the South of England at least. One colleague actually goes off to his, spend about three months in France and he was coming in from his seat in France and couldn't physically get back because of the Covid regulations. Um, so, you do still interact. It's, it cuts it down, but that's not really very different from the situation that a lot of, say, someone who was an author or something like that would have had before we had computers when you were working with telephones and with typewriters and those sorts of things. Um, most of that consists of sitting in a room by yourself. Um, it's different, it's not the same as going out and seeing people around. And some people really miss that. And there's a lot of those sort of um, peripheral elements of, of the working environment. But again, those are artificial things. Um, equally well, um, during times when I've worked in the centre of London, I didn't actually enjoy spending two hours sitting on a train and being packed in on a train. And then you go up and then you have to battle across on the tube and then you get out. and then you don't actually see any of London. You see like 300 yards of High Hobart yeah. and two tube trains, and then you do it all over again. And then you get home and it's like half past eight o'clock at, eight, half past eight at night, and you know, you've got to be up at set for the 6.53 the next morning. You've got to do the whole thing all over again. And actually that bit, I'm really happy to not have, frankly. Um, it changes a lot of these things all the changes through technology and through development, they're all going to be different. Now, for individual people, the effect may not be very good. If you are someone who is working the tools in Tesco's, and then, then they bring in loads of self-service tools, or even get to, um, have you seen in Ealing, Amazon have got a supermarket. No. <laughs> next, next to Ealing Broadway. And you have to have Bluetooth on your phone and it connects into your Amazon account and it's got cameras on the ceiling and it watches what you take and you don't do anything. There's no gate to go through. It records everything and then builds your Amazon account. Wow. I mean, it's got staff who are stacking the shelves and I'm willing to bet it has some security men who will go and stop you if you try and walk out. And it's, it's not high, it, high value products. Um, you know, it actually is the sort of things you get in a small supermarket. It's tins of beans and loaves of bread and that sort of thing. But yeah, the whole thing is automated. There are no checkouts. You literally walk straight out. And it, apparently, from the news reports I've seen, it feels extremely weird. It feels like shop, <laughs> And that's all done with AI. It's all done with the fact it knows what products are where and it can see you get them and put them into your bag. you just put it in your bag you don't have to have their bag you don't have you don't have a trolley um and it's identified from your phone what your amazon account is so it can bill you and the comments
0: have to try it
1: i've actually been tempted to but i don't have any calls to go to Ealing.
0: (laughs) me neither but it might be worth a trip
1: (laughs) i believe it's just next to Ealing broadway station um it's All of those, now you see, that's put the people sitting on the tills out of work, which obviously, if that's their job and such like, and they don't get to see the other people in the shop, but is it actually a job that's a great tragedy to not have? Assuming they had another job, assuming they weren't just being put on to benefits. Um, You know, I mean, going around stacking shelves in a supermarket and bringing stuff through isn't actually a terribly good use of people's time anyway.
0: I think it's like you said, it depends if there is another job for them to go to, because if there isn't, then that's where the problem sits. Do you think, um, my last kind of question, do you think um, that there is anything in education that we need to do to prepare people for, because the, the way that work's gonna look is gonna be very different from when you went into the workforce and from when I went into the workforce. Do you think there's something that, that we need to do through education to prepare people for this?
1: It's a very difficult question, um, and I've got, I've got about four elements to it. I'm afraid it gets quite complicated. At this one, um, yes, one big thing that we which is happening. People are trying to do it, and you need to have an environment where the school leavers are much more aligned to that type of area of work now to a certain degree that's absolutely true because today's school leavers don't even remember don't even remember when ps3s came out they have had um consoles for the whole of their life they the one time when my son was about 11, he actually had the set of things from school to interview somebody who was old. So he chose me and he asked me what Playstations were like when I was a little boy. <laughs> well, but how would you know?
0: You wouldn't know.
1: D- Douglas Adams, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he once said this rather good section. He said that basically any technology that comes out after you're about 35 years old is an abomination. And you will never quite get the hang of it. Anything that came out between when you were between, say, about 12 and 20 or so is really exciting and probably a good one, good career potentially for you. And anything that came out before that stage has just been there forever, and you have no idea how on earth people coach without it. And we get we're getting a population now who really don't know what it exists to not have, not to have a phone that you can watch um, YouTube on. Um, It's really, you know, they, they are aligned to those sorts of things. Now, we have got the skill of how do we give them the relevant skills to be able to, to develop apps and to program and those sorts of things. And that's quite a difficult process. I mean, one problem we have is you actually need to have sufficient teachers who've got those skills. And there is nowhere near enough of those to be able to actually give them the degree of training that they need to have to come out at age 16 able to do this. The other big problem, as you know, doing a PhD in computing is actually programming computers is really, really quite hard. And it's one of those things, It's actually one of the few university subjects where people may not actually be able to do it. If you go and do a degree in French, you will leave able to speak French and you probably have read some French books. If you go with a degree in chemistry, you'll know how to do reactions and those sorts of things, but it's possible and I do know it, I've had students in the past who have gone through and graduated with a degree in computer science and they still can't program. They've never learned to it. because it's actually physically quite a hard thing to do. Um, some of us can do it. Um, I did some research on this at one stage. Um, and I sort of refer to the, there's always a substrate of students who will never get it. And I always refer to them as squibs, which comes from the Harry Potter books um, in Harry Potter, is, uh, a squib is somebody from a wizarding family who can't do magic and you have exactly this, I mean, and some people estimate that it's as much as like 25 or 30% of the class in computer science just can't actually get the basic idea of how to program. And what you can do with those, now there are things you can do. Um, I slightly facetiously mentioned phone shops but To work in a phone shop or something, you don't need to be able to program in Java. Um, To actually do quite a lot of things, to install a computer system across um, an organization, assuming we do have networks of computer systems in future, uh, because there's no actual guarantee that that's going to happen, very, very soon we're going to have a situation where tablets and such like are going to become much more common. in those cases, you don't need to be able to program. You need to know a fair bit of technical issues, but a lot more of it is being able to do the organization and the logistical work and those sorts of things. And the same way, I don't know how to put cables into a building. I mean, I know what to tell someone to put in. Um, all of those things. I mean, a lot of those things are changing. I mean, actually, I don't think people are going to be networking up comput- um, offices in a few years' time. I'm not certain there are going to be fixed offices, actually. Um, you know, a lot of the... One last sort of spot comment on there. Do you know what the the average computer in the world is now? It's not a PC. It's not a laptop. It's not a Mac. It's an Android smartphone. Really? Yeah, when, well, the thing you have to think about is think across the whole world. So, where you think, and the big places, the developed West, most people have got, who have got a computer, have probably got one or have got access to one now. A very large proportion, 50, 60, 70% have got access to those sorts of things. Where it's really developing is the developing world. So it's things like East Asia, Southeast Asia, um, Sub-Saharan Africa, and those sorts of things. Now, none of those people need a laptop. A subsistence farmer in India has no possible use of an Excel spreadsheet. He really doesn't want it. He does not need Microsoft Word. He's never gonna write a report using Microsoft Word. And you have to be near Maine's power for it. So you're gonna get eight hours. And then what you're gonna do, go to Delhi to charge it up and come back again. Whereas an Android smartphone, especially those cheap Android smartphones that you see that are about 60, 70 pounds at the Chinese that um, are on Amazon. Those that's absolutely perfect because he can watch YouTube videos telling him how to inoculate his cattle. He can talk to his son in Bangalore and ask him to send some money or to go and do something or sort something out for him. He can, he can watch friends. He can, everything he really needs to do, it can be done on a smartphone and it's something he can carry in his pocket. That so makes there a lot are,
0: of sense, yeah.
1: There are vastly more of these, especially, you know, those really, really terrible, in our terms, cheapo Android phones, which we'd never consider touching. Um, because that is the computing power, that's the power that you need. And you can probably charge it with a solar panel, which in hot areas is really easy. Um, They're even building some some places, they build like a village hub, which has got a satellite downlink to the internet, and it's got loads of solar panels. And it basically is a Wi-Fi hotspot within about 20 meters of this hut in the middle. And everyone meets up and you can charge your phone up and you can do everything you really need to have. And you don't need a laptop. That's Western thinking. Wow.
0: And, and I can't even get Wi-Fi in my study. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: That's ridiculous.
1: Well, of course, the, the, the fact of not having any stone construction and no brick walls and things probably <laughs> helps matters there. Um, but all you need to have, you know, and of course you'll get to meet everybody else at that point in the village as well. So it adds to that. And if you want to teach the children, the children just meet up in one of the long rooms and such like, and they can use their smartphones. It's, yeah. it's actually changed things. I mean, one of the big things, one of the problems in getting education out to the developing world is the fact that textbooks are really heavy. They're really, really vulnerable because they catch fire and they get wet and that sort of thing. And they're really expensive because you need hard currency. Now, getting that supplied as YouTube videos or getting that supplied as PDFs or such like suddenly means every child can have the textbook. You don't have to suddenly reproduce them. Now that's putting publishers out of work. They're certainly changing the game. And of course, that's a big issue, but It is an opportunity as well, that's the thing. There's a change, and it can be a personal tragedy, you know, the fact that you no longer can do your job. Uh, My uncle trained as a compositor, he was a printer, and he was the person who actually put together the type, and you literally have a big thing which was called a font, which was a big sort of cupboard on wheels thing which had a big box of Es and a slightly smaller one of As and a smaller one of Ts and a really really tiny box with about seven Zs and such like and he literally took these lead type and put it onto um, a frame and then you put it together make up a page and that was the article and he was justifying it by hand with little bits of lead at the same time and spell checking it while he was going along in his head. And he worked at the daily mirror and he had to do this so you did an article and the you got the copies sent down probably written longhand at sort of six o'clock and they had to start the presses at half past eight and wow. the next morning it was on and his last few years of work before he retired which was the late 1970s he was being put out of work from this because nobody did hot metal work anymore it was all phototypesetting. So he no, he no longer had a job from it. And this was an incredibly highly skilled working class job. Um, but by comparison, we can write documents up. We could send it off to a print on demand and you can get 2000 copies of something bound up now. Yeah. Which is probably a better thing, except for the person who was the hot metal compositor who spent all his life doing this by hand.
0: But it didn't mean that man, many, many people were out of work en masse, did it? it? kind of just, I suppose maybe it kind of changed in, if you're kind of coming up to retirement and then the jobs are changing, then it kind of changes over for the new generation. But if you're kind of halfway through in your mid profession and then, then everything that, changes, that becomes difficult.
1: That's, yes, I, forgive me for saying, you're a little young to remember this, but in the early eighties, there was a whole process when Rupert Murdoch bought the Times and the Sun, and he basically moved them to a print works in Wapping Way. In Docklands, on the edge of Docklands, and everything was then run from there and there were strikes and they actually um, picketed the site for about two years and the Times was actually out of, wasn't printed for about a year because of this. Um, And this was that whole changeover and after that they'd broken the system and then from then on computerized typesetting was the way that happened and nobody would make a newspaper except very, very odd. You know, things like um, little trade journals and things like that were still printed hot metal. Um, Len's last couple of years of work, he was actually printing the messages on the back of medicine bottles. And that was all still done by hand. <clears throat> you know, the sort of take three twice, three times a day type of thing that was printed on the labels. Um, and it all vanished. And now it has all gone completely. Um, so when it changes, and if you then don't have that, and if you're in your 50s and you're not likely to retrain and get something brand new, then that is a personal tragedy. And it's something that really is not, is a very bad thing. Um, and I've had to sort of change direction I took several times in my life. I'm sure in your personal career, you're going to find you have several different changes of direction. And it's not actually a very nice situation, especially when you want to do things like get a mortgage.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so it's not a, an altogether good thing. As I say, to go back to your first question, how does technology affect unemployment? Yes, it has an effect, but there's no way we can predict what that's going to be.
0: Well, Andy, I think we'll probably have to wait and see, and it'll not happen in the too far away future. We've we've run massively over on our podcast because it's been such a fascinating topic. Thank you so much for being a guest today. It's been brilliant.
1: Thank you for your time. Thank you for asking me along. (laughs) Phew. <laughs>